A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Yehuda Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode, which is part three in the history of anti-Semitism throughout Jewish history, is sponsored by the Torah Graduate School of Jewish Studies, a leading academic program in Jewish studies that equips students with the tools to search out their own unique path into the study of Jewish history and scholarship. Based in Midtown Manhattan, the Tura Graduate School of Jewish Studies provides students a supportive environment and personal attention from world-class faculty, seminar-style courses, one-on-one mentorship opportunities, and career advancement guidance. Students can study in person or do the program online from anywhere in the world. Turo Graduate School of Jewish Studies has produced outstanding leaders in Chinuch academia and Jewish communal service for more than 40 years. The Turo University Graduate School of Jewish Studies offers a Master of Arts degree in Jewish Studies with concentrations in Jewish history and Jewish education and a Doctor of Philosophy degree in Jewish history, literature, and thought. The Master of Arts program includes in-person, remote, and hybrid options. Each program consists of a rigorous, well-structured curriculum in which students are able to discuss and debate ideas and delve into challenging texts with professors and with passionate, accomplished peers. The Master of Arts History courses with emphasis in medieval and modern Jewish history, literature, and thought offer a thorough and thoughtful look at the lives and ideas of Jews over the past millennium, and the Master of Arts Education program focuses on effective classroom instruction and management, day school curriculum, and methodologies of teaching diverse subjects in Jewish studies. The PhD program provides graduate students advanced academic training in Jewish studies with an emphasis upon the intellectual, cultural, literary, social, and political history of the Jewish people over the past millennium. Study with world-renowned scholars at the Graduate School of Jewish Studies, including Dean Michael Schmidman and Professor Schneer Lyman, Judith Bleich, Jeffrey Wolf, Susan Weissman, and Dana Fishkin, among other respected experts. For more information on admission to the Turo Graduate School of Jewish Studies, including scholarship opportunities, please visit gsjs.turo.edu or call 212-463-0400, extension 55580. And of course, I will post the um, link and the phone number on the uh, text summary of the episode, as well as on the social media platforms of Jewish History Soundbites. And now we will delve into our part three uh, of, of the history of anti-Semitism here on Jewish History Soundbites. In parts one and two, we explored 
Jewish, uh, and, not Jewish, anti, anti-Jewishness, anti-Judaism, anti-Jewish people, Jew, anti-Jewish hatred or anti-Semitism um, throughout the ages. Part two, we delved more into 19th century um, nationalism-based anti-Semitism. And I want to finish up, wrap up that that um, topic today and then try to get into the racial anti-Semitism of the 20th century, which culminated in the Nazi Holocaust. And perhaps we'll even touch on a drop of the post-Holocaust anti-Semitism at the end. Uh, so we were talking about the 19th century and the anti-Semitism. I brought examples from France, Germany, and Tsarist Russia. And I want to get back to Tsarist Russia and how it exported its brand of anti-Semitism um, throughout the world um, at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. And I was trying to describe how it got progressively worse. And we can only speculate how bad it might have gotten for the Jews in Russia, which was the largest by far Jewish community in the world at the turn of the century. Um, had the had the World War One the and the revolution not happened, because it was really getting bad and it was got at its pretty much its worst moment at the Bendel Bayless trial, which was a ritual murder frame-up, um, like a throwback to the Middle Ages almost, of the blood libel, um, in 1912-1913. Um, and he was acquitted ultimately, but the very idea that this was possible to happen in Tsarist Russia, and the fact that the government supported the prosecution, supported the frame-up of this completely innocent uh, Jew, and made it about the Jewish community. It wasn't about Mendel Bayless himself, it was about the Jews, and his cl- his trial clearly um, expressed that. It was about the Jews as a whole, as a community, um, not Mendel Bayless per se, which is a very crucial point. So in that context, we have the Protocols of the Elders of Zion which was a fabrication of of uh, of of a uh, seemingly of, of people in within the Tsarist government itself in Russia in the early 1900s it's unclear exactly when and where it, it took place but it took but it was fabricated in Tsarist Russia by Tsarist Russian officials in the early 1900s and basically the protocols of the elders of Zion were a a forgery of 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 protocols, uh, seemingly of of uh, Jews from all over the world, elders, right? The Jewish leaders, bankers, financiers, politicians, rabbis, all kinds of Jewish leaders, and they congregate from time to time to discuss how they're going to take over the world, how they're going to take over world finance, how they're going to take over revolutions against governments throughout the world. And they are gonna. This is the Jewish world takeover, and this is a the, using all the anti-Semitic tropes and caricatures, and and solidifying it into these protocols of ostensibly this meeting that takes place, and this forgery they use in the Tsarist Russian media to flame anti-Semitism, and then you have to understand the Tsar. It's not just. The ancient anti-Semitism, it's not just Russian nationalism, it's not just the old religious anti-Semitism of the Russian Orthodox Church. Everything comes together in Tsarist Russia, including the need to find a scapegoat because the Tsarist Russian government is teetering on revolution. Remember the 1905, the 
first revolution against the Tsarist government breaks out, and the there's revolutionary fervor in the air, and they are they are uh, very ner- concerned about that. And by deflecting the blame to the Jews, it's the Jews who are creating unfair competition in commerce. It's the Jews who are a threat to Russian society, um, and and the, the it serves a purpose towards the Russian government to to uh, distract the masses, as as it were. So there's a lot of things that go into Tsarist Russian anti-Semitism in the first decade of the 20th century. But what's important for our story is is that it's exported. In the early years, it's exported on a very small scale um, to other countries. It really gets exported following the revolution. And the whites, uh, during the Russian Civil War, it's the Reds who are the communists, the Bolsheviks, against the whites, the ones who support the Tsar. And this is the Russian elite, this is the Russian aristocracy, uh, the nobility, the formerly wealthy landowners. They're forced into exile after the revolution, and especially after the civil war ends in in favor of the Reds, in favor of the Bolsheviks, and the Soviet Union is established, so the whites are in exile. And many, many expats, white expats, end up in Paris. It becomes a hotbed of, uh, of Russian nobility and former supporters of the Tsar, but also in Germany and in England and in the United States. And these are the ones who bring the Protocols of the Elders of Zion with them. And it becomes very popular in France following World War I, also in Germany, and in other countries in the world, including the United States. In the United States, excerpts of it are published uh, successively by Henry Ford, who is uh, uh, one of the, maybe the biggest, one of the greatest anti-Semites in the United States at the time, openly anti-Semitic, and in his newspaper, his own newspaper, the Dearborn Independent. Um, so it's popular everywhere. And it becomes a very, very powerful trope, uh, anti-Semitic trope. Um, you know, and again, the Rothschild, the banking, the, the finance and, and the media. And um, in America, it's also the emerging Hollywood. All this is is cobbled together as this Jewish takeover of society. Now, I also want to touch on for a minute how Jews have responded to anti-Semitism and specifically against modern anti-Semitism in the 19th and 20th centuries. Again, we're the early 20th centuries. So one of the minor ways, which I found to be fascinating, this probably wasn't very effective, but it is a response, was by humor. And a lot of Jewish humor, a lot of classic Jewish humor, which today is considered the classic of Jewish humor, was a response to anti-Semitism. Now, how effective is humor and jokes, uh, comedy, uh, in combating anti-Semitism? One can argue that it's not very effective at all. But on the other hand, it's a coping mechanism, and I'm sure psychologists and sociologists will have a lot to say about it. But it also is reflective of a historical time period. And many old Jewish jokes are ways of showing the coping mechanisms that Jews developed in the Pale of Settlement or in the United States or in other countries in the world to deal with anti-Semitism. And it's a very, very consistent with what a, a victim, very often a powerless victim, has nothing to actually, no, very few tools in his arsenal to actually combat anti-Semitism. Uh, so they, they, they use it 
you know, in, in in the humor and almost in the fantasy and the in the alternative reality, they can they can joke about it as if, um, and, and that's like an escape. I would guess. I guess that would be the best way to phrase it. I remember I had a copy of Henry Spaulding's classic book of Jewish humor. I was not able. I wanted to read a few of the jokes from there actually on the podcast because. There's a whole chapter of in the book on anti uh, jokes about anti-Semitism. I couldn't find the book. I'm assuming that I lent it to someone and that someone chose not to return it. Um, but one of them I remember. Uh, so I remember offhand. So I remember there was this. It's this New York City subway in the 1930s, uh, the mid late 30s or so. And there's two Jews uh, sitting next to each other on the subway, and one is reading uh, the Fovertz, which is the classic Yiddish newspaper of that time in New York, and the other one, surprisingly, is reading Der Stürmer, which is the Nazi newspaper of Julius Streicher, of Nazi propaganda, which was extremely anti-Semitic, might be the most anti-Semitic newspaper in history, and Streicher, of course, was tried at Nuremberg, convicted, and hung. So the Jew, reading the Fovertz, he he turns to the one reading the Stierman, how could you read that garbage, that anti-Semitic vitriol? So he says, uh, so the other guy says, I don't understand how you could read the Fovertz. If you read the Fovertz in the late 1930s, you're going to find out that the Nazis are persecuting Jews in Germany. You're going to find out about anti-Semitism in Poland. You're going to find out that Jews are also targeted during the Great purges in, in Stalinist uh, Soviet Union. You're going to find out about numerous clauses in, in getting into university in Hungary and in the United States and other countries that Jews are discriminated against. You're going to find out that the Great Arab Revolt in Palestine, so there's Jews getting killed there in British Mandatory Palestine, and the British are making immigration restrictions. It's awful. It's, it's literally, it, it, how can you read it? He said, I read the Stürmer. What do I find out? That Jews control the banks. Jews control the media. Jews are taking over the world. It's wonderful. It's such, it's comforting news. So that's why I choose to read their Stürmer over their Fovertz. Now, of course, it's a joke, but it's very reflective of that time period and how Jews dealt with anti-Semitism by sometimes having this escapism of humor and of comedy. Um, and there's many, many illustrations of that. Two of the more practical uh, solutions that Jews came up with to combat um, uh, modern anti-Semitism, the largest response was immigration. And if we take a long view once again, that was always the response throughout Jewish history. Anytime it got too hard somewhere, Jews simply picked up and left. Um, in modern times, because of the restrictions in Russia, because of the pale of settlement and the limitations and economic opportunity and education that Tsarist Russia created, and the pogroms, pogroms played a much more minor role than it is generally assumed, it was more the economic aspect of it, which was a result of anti-Semitic policies of the Tsarist government, of course, the pale of settlement and those restrictions and what jobs they can enter and what education opportunities they have, um, so all kinds of things like that, led to the greatest immigration of all time um, in Jewish history, of course, um, where two and a half million Jews come to the United States, not only from Russia, also from Romania, where there was plenty of anti-Semitism, and also from Galicia, where there was not as much anti-Semitism, but still there was all kinds of, uh, of challenges there, too. Now, um, the 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 so so immigration was the was the biggest response and one can 
argue perhaps that it was the most successful because you moved to a different area that has less anti-Semitism. And even though there was, as I described with Henry Ford and other, uh, Father Coughlin eventually in the 1930s, there was many manifestations of anti-Semitism. It was difficult to get into universities, into medical schools. Um, there was... Um, there was discrimination in the United States. You know, we talk about the Mendel Bayless trial. The Leo Frank uh, frame up uh, 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 was almost at the same time as the Mendel Bayless trial. So you're talking about it, and which was which ended in a lynching, ironically, in backward czarist imperial Russia with the greatest anti-Semitism on the planet. Um, it the Mendel Bayless trial ended with an acquittal in court. Um, and the Leo Frank trial ended with a lynching. So the, sometimes the anti-Semitism can be even more violent in a enlightened country like the United States than in Tsarist Russia. So that's a, a, another irony of, of that history. It's literally the same years as each other. Um, but on the other hand, Mendel Bayless himself and many others find refuge in the United States. They, they, they move there, right? Um, so... That's the solution. Immigration ends up being the solution not only to the United States, to Argentina, South Africa, to um, Ottoman and then later British Palestine, and to many other countries in the world. Um, so that, that becomes the biggest solution as far as scales and number, and as far as success rate. They definitely bettered their lives in their new homes, especially in the United States, um, materialistically, for sure. Um, the other solution, born out of Russian anti-Semitism and Western European anti-Semitism, German and French anti-Semitism, in other words, the twin uh, problems of the Russian anti-Semitism and their refusal to grant their Jews emancipation, their refusal to end the Pale of Settlement, on one hand, that's in Eastern Europe in the late 1800s, and on the other hand, in Western Europe, where they had emancipation, and when it was hoped for throughout the 19th century that emancipation would solve the problem of anti-Semitism, and when modern anti-Semitism arises in the form of nationalism, and Jews are excluded from the new nationalism, Jews aren't French, Jews aren't German, as we described last time, it led to a great uh, uh, realization, and also a depressing realization, a, a down, so to speak, of the Jews in Western Europe that, hey, emancipation failed. It didn't work. We thought this would solve anti-Semitism, and it has not solved it. And that realization, and combined with the fact that the largest Jewish community in the world never got emancipation in the first place, they can't even get themselves out of the Pale of Settlement in Russia. So that twin realization leads to Jewish nationalism. You're going to exclude us from your nationalism? Okay, then I guess we'll have to form our own. That basically becomes the solution, and that is best expressed in Leon Pinsker's book, Auto-Emancipation. He says, you won't give us emancipation in Eastern Europe, in Russia, where Pinsker is, or alternatively in Western Europe, your emancipation didn't work because it hasn't resolved the problem of anti-Semitism, so we're going to have to auto-emancipate. We'll have to emancipate ourselves by creating Jewish nationalism, and Jewish nationalism is, in its most famous form, ultimately is in the Zionist movement. But Jewish nationalism took other forms as well. And, uh, and, and that's a fascinating exploration into the various forms that Jewish nationalism took at the end of the 19th and beginning of 20th centuries um, 
Um, and, and all of this was a response to the anti-Semitism. So Jewish nationalism, um, and especially the Zionist movement, is born out of a reaction to the, the modern anti-Semitism. Now, from that, we'll, we'll, we'll shift over to how modern anti-Semitism uh, goes into racial anti-Semitism. And it's, it follows almost like, uh, like B follows A, meaning in, ret- in hindsight it makes perfect sense that one should lead to the other, um, because nationalism ultimately, as the 19th century progressed, came more and more and more to be defined on racial terms. Um, especially with the rise of social Darwinism in the 19th century, and especially with the rise of the eugenics movement in the 19th century of racially pure, and who's really the nation, and the nation needs to be defined in racial context. Um, The nation is defined by this ethnic race who's lived here for centuries or even millennia, and then anyone new and anyone different um, is not part of this nation because they're from a different race. And that gains popularity at the end of the 19th century and gains traction in the beginning of the 20th century, and ultimately it's picked up by extreme nationalists in Germany, um, even before Hitler, and 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 racial anti-Semitism basically says Jews are not a religion, Jews are not a nation, Jews are not an ethnic group, Jews are a race, and this is the first time that Jews are defined as a race, and and they are um, and they are um, and and therefore and they're considered a separate race, and that has big ramifications because. Nation would be, in theory, defined by citizenship. Religion would be defined by religion and whether the country has religious tolerance or not. Whereas race, there's nothing to do about it. Race is something that that flows the blood in your veins and there's absolutely nothing you can do to change it. You can't convert to another religion. You can't gain citizenship to another country because your race is different. You're fundamentally different. And Nazi racial ideology comes from this background and greater context, um, which Hitler formulates in his book, Mein Kampf, which he writes in, in while he's in jail after his failed uh, attempt at, at seizing power in Germany in 1923, the Beer Hall Putsch, uh, the Munich uh, is... is and he's arrested, thrown in jail during the Weimar Republic, during the Germany's attempt at democracy in the 1920s. And while he's in jail, he writes this book, Mein Kampf, which is my struggle. And there he he really delineates his philosophy um, of uh, regarding Germany and Germany's future and his racial hierarchy, where he saw everything in terms of race and a pyramid of humanity of races, where I'm not going to get into the whole story of Nazi racial ideology now because it will be excuse me, straying off topic, but um, he, of course, sees the Aryan master race as the the ones who are the creators of culture. They're the ones who are the supposed to be the masters of society. Then there's all these lower races, Slavic races, and and, and Asian races, and African races. There's all these, they're lower races. They're supposed to serve the Aryan master race. And then there's subhuman races, Untermenschen, who are anti-racist they're not they're they're an anti-race they're 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 not they're not just not productive they're 
They're destroyers of culture. They're destroyers of society. They're a threat to the future and mastery of the Aryan race. And that is the Jews. The Jews are untermenschen. They're subhuman. They're not even a, a regular human race that's just lower on the scale. They're actually a race that's, uh, that's completely not, uh, has no rights whatsoever. Now, in that, in that, in that context, it, 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 it's taking the existing anti-Semitism, which always saw the Jews as the other. Um, throughout the church anti-Semitism of the Middle Ages, and then the modern anti-Semitism of nationalism. And now, as racial anti-Semitism is continuing that, but taken to a new extreme by defining it in terms of race. Now, obviously, there are many more factors which leads to the Holocaust and the final solution. The Holocaust needs to be viewed within many broader contexts, European history, World War II, genocide in general. It can't be limited to anti-Semitism. Um, but racial anti-Semitism plays a decisive role in Nazi ideology in the 1920s as it's forming. And then after 1933, when Hitler seizes power and the German people stand behind him, fully supporting the Nazi ideology, the racial anti-Semitism. And that, that ideology, which is racial anti-Semitism, forms the basis which enables the Holocaust and the final solution. So... The racial anti-Semitism um, plays a very, very important role in how the Holocaust is able to take place uh, by the Nazis, by the German people, by the SS, by whoever is is playing a minor or major or direct or indirect role. It's because they're able to see them as a subhuman race, as someone outside of society. That's how it's possible also that, you know, uh, People who aren't religious, descendants of people, there's, there's a whole, a whole tyra, a whole system of laws in the Nazi Nuremberg laws uh, promulgated in September of 1935 of what defines a Jew based on race. Um, and and there's Mischlinge, someone who's mixed blood. There could be someone who's either there was intermarriage or someone who converted a few generations back and then there was intermarriage and there could be one Jewish grandparent, two Jewish grandparents, three Jewish grandparents or a full-blooded Jew has four Jewish grandparents. Um, interestingly enough, by the way, um, it affected uh, uh, Israeli law in the 1970s when the law of return was amended. Um, since the state of Israel was born out of the Zionist movement and the Zionist movement was born out of uh, Jew Jewish nationalism as a reaction against anti-Semitism. So the state of Israel saw itself as 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 that they they must be the future savior of any anti-Semitic regime um, because that's the whole purpose of why it was established out of out of the dream of of of, of Jewish nationalism. So therefore. Um, the law of return, which is the law that allows any Jew to come anywhere in the world at any time and become a citizen of the state of Israel and therefore uh, is protected under its laws. Um, so they decided to amend the law and define it not as a halachic Jew, but rather as what was defined in the Nuremberg laws as the Jews, which in, in a way makes sense because if the idea was to protect anyone from anti-Semitism, so then we need to use the anti-Semites definition in a twisted irony. So we have to use the Nuremberg laws as a basis of which Jew or which person is allowed to return, is allowed to 
immigrate and become a citizen of the state of Israel under the law of return. That's a, another interesting uh, side note in history, which of course has internal divides in Israeli society until today, because just because you're defined as a Jew, and in other words, Hitler, when he promulgated the Nuremberg Laws, didn't ask Orthodox rabbis who's halachically Jewish, because he couldn't care less about religion. It was all about race. It was all about bloodlines, not religion. And therefore, and therefore, um, he, he didn't consult the Shulchan Aruch when he made the Nuremberg Laws. And since the State of Israel adopted um, that as the basis of the law of return, so then there's the question, well, someone who's not halachically Jewish, but he is Jewish enough to immigrate to the State of Israel um, and, 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 and therefore become a citizen and goes to the school, speaks the language, serves in the army, pays taxes, considers themselves a Jew, and then all of a sudden they want to get married, and the Rabbanut says, hey, halakhically you're not Jewish, there's a problem. That becomes a point of conflict. So the Nuremberg Laws passed in 1935 are going to become an issue of, of, a, of someone wanting to get married in the state of Israel in 2023. So it's an interesting wraparound of history. So, getting back to the racial anti-Semitism. So we have this culmination of racial anti-Semitism in the Holocaust. And the end, is, the Holocaust is the final solution which is the destruction of European Jewry. Nearly six million Jews are killed, which is a, a story, obviously, in itself. But that is, is, uh, is in the background, is this racial anti-Semitism. What happens after the war? Um, interesting that the great Holocaust scholar, um, Yehud, Professor Yehuda Bauer, today in his 90s, still doing research on the Holocaust. So he pointed out that before the war, across Europe, and even in the United States, you had these leagues or political parties or societies or clubs that openly declare themselves as anti-Semitic, the Anti-Semite League, the Anti-Semitic Party. And they put it on their party platform, they put it as a club, and it's a something that you, part of your identity, part of, in, in many many areas, that they, this is part of who they are and part of their platform, part of their agenda is anti-Semitism. After Hitler, after World War II, after the Holocaust, no one declares themselves anymore to be an anti-Semite. No one gets up. It was an insight that I had never thought of, and he pointed out, and I saw how right he was. No one gets up today and says, hey, I'm an anti-Semite, this is my platform, and I'm forming an anti-Semitic political party. No one says that, declares that. There are lo- plenty of anti-Semites out there, and there's loads of anti-Semitism out there, but no one says it like that. In other words, um, it's become out of style to say that you're an anti-Semite, and that's because Hitler and the Holocaust and SS and the Nazis made it so bad to be considered an anti-Semite, then now it has to be covered over and then denied, I'm not really an anti-Semite, it's only this, it's only that. And and that's a fascinating change, a whole shift in the way anti-Semitism is viewed post-Holocaust. Now, anti-Semitism after the Holocaust, you have anti-Semitism, for instance, in the Soviet Union, especially in the last years of Stalin's life, but also even after that, you have anti-Semitism that still existed in Europe, in Germany itself and other countries, in Poland, especially after the Six-Day War in 1968, there's this outright anti-Semitic wave of chasing Jews out of Poland. It's less spoken about because we assume for some reason that there's no Jews left in Poland after the war, but that's not true. There was a sizable Jewish community even in the 1950s and 60s, and there... 
not not actually expelled, as in like like the Spanish expulsion in 1492, but kind of like chased out of the country, um, like like a large number, I think fifteen or twenty thousand Jews. I didn't check the exact number before. I don't have it in my notes, but a, a fascinating expression of anti-Semitism in 1968, nine, and seventy. Um, there's American anti-Semitism. I remember my own uh, uh, my wife's uh, grandfather told me how I asked him how he became a chemist. So he said, well, I wanted to be a doctor uh, in the 1940s in the United States. And uh, he couldn't get accepted to medical school because um, they had en- enough Jews already in the medical school. So he couldn't get into medical school, not based, not because of his credentials. His credentials were fine, but because of American anti-Semitism in the 1940s. Um, and... Uh, and uh, um, the and 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 therefore he became a chemist instead. Nabuch. Um So there's there's then there's this rise of anti-Semitism in the Muslim world, um, especially radical Islam. Palestinian nationalism is often expressed in anti-Semitic caricatures and forms. And then, like I mentioned, the new anti-Semitism, a combination of the right and extreme right, the extreme left. Um, and the story and the big question, which I'm not going to answer, obviously, because that's politics, not history, about whether anti-Israel is anti-Semitism uh, or not. Um, but I do want to point out one last thing. In On August 23, 1939, a momentous event took place in world history, which needs to be studied more because it's brushed over a lot today. And that was the signing of the Molotov-Von-Ribbentrop non-aggression pact between um, Stalin's communist Soviet Union and Hitler's Nazi uh, Germany, uh, the Third Reich. And that is not directly related to anti-Semitism at all. It has to do with European geopolitics, has to do with the division of Poland, has to do with World War II, has to do with different stories. It's not about anti-Semitism. But what it, the way it shocked the world was, is that somehow... Hitler, which represented the extreme right, extreme nationalism, the extreme right, racial, all that, um, racial elitism, and the extreme left, which is Stalin, Soviet Union, communism, um, in an extreme fashion, somehow meet at, and sign a treaty together. And how could that be? They're on the extreme opposites. And what it really shows is how the political extremes throughout history, not only then, but it's probably the best example of it, illustration of it, is that the political line is not a linear line of 180 degrees, it's 360 degrees. Um, and the political extremes actually meet, in fact. Um, and they don't, they're not at the opposite ends. The political extremes meet because extremism in any form is able to meet any other radical extremism. So it's easier to understand um, in 20th century anti-Semitism, how the extreme right and extreme left can meet on the platform, the common platform of anti-Semitism. The best example I have that from post-World War II is once again in Germany, German anti-Semitism. And it's an incredible story in the Entebbe story, which I covered several years ago, almost one of the first episodes in Jewish History Soundbites, Operation Thunderbolt, the Entebbe Raid. Um, and what happened there is that the, the, these, these domestic terrorists in Germany, which are part of the new left, they're part of the new left, they're the extreme radical left, 
and they're protesting against the conservative German and German government, which they feel still has remnants of the Nazis, has still has officials who served in the Nazi government, and and they're protesting against the right, and they're violent against the right. So they're the left, they're the liberal, they're the 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 I guess like the you know communists, whatever it is. Um, I don't know exactly communists. And one of their things is, uh, um, you know, um, supporting the Palestinian cause. And therefore, they are, these German, young German terrorists are part of the team that, together with Palestinian terrorists, hijack that, uh, that Air France flight that ends up in Entebbe. Now, what's important for our story is, is that one of the young German terrorists, um, during the whole story, as Operation, as, as the, hijacking unfolded. And when they land in Entebbe, they carry out a, we'll use the word in its most extreme way, a selectia. They differentiate between Jews and non-Jews. And they don't differentiate between Israelis and non-Israelis. It's literally between Jews and non-Jews. And they carry out the selection, put them in two different rooms. The non-Jews get released early. Some Jews also did, it's got to be said. But many of them didn't, even non-Israeli citizens. And and it became very, very clear that this there's a German carrying out a selectia. And he's part of the left. He's the new left. He's anti-Nazi. He's anti-everything the Nazis represented in racial anti-Semitism. And what we see is, once again, and um, is that at the extremes it meets, it ultimately does meet, and that's a little bit of the history of anti-Semitism. There's definitely lots more to say throughout history, but this three-part series has now come to an end. Perhaps we'll return to it at some future time, and I'd love to hear your feedback on this part three or any part of the anti-Semitism history series, and we'll be back soon with um, um, another episode of Jewish History Soundbite soon. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Summits. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Summits uh, on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.